1: What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Moranalytics Podcast. Today is Thursday, June 14th, 2018. And June's just flying by already. I am your host, Patrick Moran. On today's show, I'll be joined by NFL.com writer and co host of the Around the NFL podcast, Mark Sessler. Mark's a great writer. And I really enjoy listening to him on that NFL.com produced podcast. I talked to Mark about being born in upstate New York near Rochester, growing up on the East Coast before moving out to LA, how and why he got in the sports media. We talk at length about today's media. And of course, plenty of football talk and other human interest stuff. I had a great time talking to Mark. And you know what? Without getting into details, Mark went out of his way to make this interview happen. There was a little bit of a mix up in dates and times and things like that. And it would have been really, really easy for Mark to just say, you know what, screw it. Let's do it another time or not at all. But like I said, Mark moved a lot of things around to make it happen for this podcast. And I'm glad he did because I really, really enjoyed my time chatting with him. It's one of those long form interviews that I've kind of gotten used to doing on this show. I really love doing them. I think it's an opportunity for you guys to get to know these people a lot better, pulling back the curtain and getting to know them besides more than just what they do for a living. Things like that. You get what I'm saying. We've done enough of these episodes now. I don't need to explain that to you again. I'll get to that interview in just a few minutes. Before that, a few quick programming notes. I was pumped to get such good feedback and reception and reaction from my podcast on Monday that featured my interview with former NBA star Rod Strickland. First and foremost, Rod really liked the interview, which is what matters most to me. And he went out and he encouraged his fans to listen, which they certainly did. I also saw that Michael Rappaport ended up retweeting it on Twitter. I don't know how or why he did, but it's so cool that he did. And the episode really took off from there. Tons of downloads. Tons of positive feedback. It was a very successful episode. I was very happy with it. And I'll tell you what, it was. Ed, that's really cool because I was a little apprehensive about that episode. You know, even though I'm such a big Rod Strickland fan, when I was younger watching him play, it was a great thrill for me watching him and so many of those point guards that I grew up kind of idolizing. So there was no way I wasn't going to take advantage of a chance to interview someone like Rod Strickland. But You know, having said that, I was still a little bit weary because this has been such a football-heavy podcast at this point, and that seems to be the topic, football, that I'm talking about here, that draws the most interest from listeners. I've had some Yankee guests on the show, and I've had some wrestling-relating guests and stuff like that, and that's done all right. But, you know, football's been where it's at for me to this point in the show anyway. So to have it as well-received, the Rod Strickland interview, I'm just glad that I did it. And I'll tell you what, I plan on having some more former NBA stars coming on the show throughout the summer for sure. Now, I ain't going to say who they are because straight up, and I know you think I'm crazy, but I ain't trying to get them poached by someone else for their podcast before I've had them. And don't roll your eyes either because trust me, it's literally happened to me already with another guest. So I'm not going to go advertising guests weeks or months ahead of time so someone else gets the idea to have them on. You'll know when the time's right. They'll be on the podcast and hopefully it'll be a great interview. I also want to let you know that on Monday's show, I got Yahoo Sports NBA insider Jordan Schultz as my guest on your favorite podcast by yours truly. Jordan also does college and NFL stuff with Yahoo Sports, but even adding that, I still feel like I'm selling him a little bit short. That's because he's also the co-host of the hugely, and I mean hugely popular Pull up with CJ McCollum podcast featuring, of course, Portland Trailblazer star CJ McCollum. Just like with my guest today, Mark Sessler and his crew that does the Around the League podcast, CJ and Jordan's podcast is always on the iTunes charts or Apple podcast charts, whatever it's called now. They're always on the sports and rec charts there, as it should be because both shows are great. So I'm looking forward to Monday big time. A few more quick hits here. Yo, Bills fans, word on the street, and by word on the street, I mean pretty much media reporting live from Bills' mandatory minicamp this week, is that Nate Peterman is looking very good early on. I'll tell you, and I still don't think it'll happen, but if it does, my Monday, Pat with Buck's partner, Tone Pucks, has been saying Peterman will be the week one starter in September, pretty much before Tyrod even got traded months ago. This organization, they like Nate Peterman. They really do. I think we all agree Josh Allen won't be the guy in week one. But I'm telling you right now, don't go handing the keys to A.J. McCarron quite yet. Don't do it. What else we got? Oh, we got the U.S. Open starting today. Maybe we'll talk about how that plays out on Pat Patwood Pucks come Monday. I'm going to call my shot right here, though. I'm going to go with Jason Day at 16 to 1 to win the US Open. By the way, Dustin Johnson's the favorite at only 9 to 1. This shit's wide open this year. That's how today's golf is and I don't know, maybe that's a good thing, maybe it's a bad thing. That's that's on you to decide. But I do know this, we've come a long way since Tiger used to be at even money against the entire rest of the field. And for the record, Tiger's 20 to 1 this week. Let's save your money, man. Ain't happening this weekend. Tigers not winning the U.S. Open. Okay, enough with the small talk. Let's get to today's podcast and my interview with NFL.com's Mark Sessler. Okay, my guest today is a writer for NFL.com, and he's also a co-host on the hugely popular Around the NFL podcast, a podcast that charts very high on the Apple Podcast charts. Of course, I'm referring to Mark Sessler. How are you doing, Mark? Thanks for taking some time out of your busy schedule to jump on my podcast today. Appreciate your time.
0: Yeah, no problem. Happy to. And, uh, you know, it's we've been trying to set this up for a while, so I'm, I'm glad we can finally get it in the books.
1: Yeah, definitely. Like I said, I, I know you're busy, got a lot of things going on, including your own podcast. So for you to take time out, I really do appreciate it. And then listen, I'm going to warn you ahead of time, I'm going to kind of go digging into all kinds of things here, switching gears, talking about a bunch of different things, not just football. Hopefully that's a nice little change of pace for you.
0: Yeah, it is. No, I, I would say all uh, all topics on the table, do what you must.
1: Cool. All right. So, well, let's start at the beginning Then tell our listeners where you're from originally.
0: Uh, so I was, and I know that you have some, some uh, uh, some Buffalo roots in, in Western New York. I was born in upstate New York in Rochester. Very close. Um, and yeah, like my dad was from, grew up in Syracuse. So my grandparents on one side were from Syracuse, uh, New York on the other side from Ithaca. So our house um, was dominated by Orangeman football, Orangeman basketball, Syracuse sports in general. My dad was a very passionate Syracuse fan, that was just some of my earliest sports memories, just how... Um, I thought it was amazing how wound I could get over Syracuse basketball in the, you know, the months from sort of November through March. And so we, we are, that was really where I began uh, up in upstate New York. And then we moved briefly as a family to, uh, to England for three years because of my dad's work, um, situation and then moved back to the Northeast and, uh, grew up in a town in Connecticut, not too far outside of sort of the New York City area. Um, so grew up, you know, from a really early age. Um, not unlike Dan Hansis, the host of our show, kind of deeply plugged into WSAN uh, as it was launching back in the day. And every Sunday was Giants and Jets football and, and Mets baseball and Yankees baseball. So it was, we, we weren't in the city, but like there really were no other teams to live and breathe other than New York City's, you know, basic, true core. Of football, baseball, and basketball teams, and that we we lived and breathed that it was on our in our house every single day.
1: Who were a couple of your personal favorite athletes when you were growing up as a young kid?
0: You know, it's funny because it's like you don't. For me, I, I wonder if it's the same brothers. Like I plugged in on individuals before I plugged in on teams, and I was super fascinated. Um, I found this these notebooks that I kept in a box in my parents' house. From like fifth and sixth grade, and it was like science notebooks. It's like there's two or three lines about something a teacher's attempting to explain to us about science. And then it just fades into drawings of Herschel Walker and Michael Jordan. I mean, it was dominated by those two guys. And I, I was so fascinated by Herschel Walker uh, when he went to the Cowboys and teamed up with Tony Dorsett and that offense. And Michael Jordan to me just, I mean, that, that truly was one of the first obvious athletes they marketed to broadly to sports fans, not to Bulls fans, not even to NBA fans, just this sort of athlete who was from a completely different dimension, if you were my age. And I, I those were the first two guys that I plugged into on such a deep level that anything I could find about them in Sports Illustrated, which back then was you know a huge place to get even just get photos oh, of players, yeah. big you, time, right? That wasn't common back then. You, where do you get photos? There was no, you know, uh, you know, image Google image search. So anything I could get on those two, and then it would branch out into other players that I just found fascinating. But they were the they were the core number one and two um, guys with no question, no really no number three.
1: So you go to high school in Connecticut, and then for college you end up going to UCLA, correct? Well, I
0: so I wound up at UCLA. Um, I, t- I I probably deeply not probably I'm certain that I deeply annoyed my parents on some level because I transferred a couple times. I actually went to uh, Miami, Ohio, where Big Ben went. Okay. Um, got out of there after one year. Uh, went to Ithaca College because they had a really they have a really good sort of radio and TV school. And like I really can't paint a a pretty picture of it. I just sort of melt like kind of melted down from academia, like having been. In school, from grade one on, I just wanted to travel, and I left school for a while and came back and went to American University in DC. Graduated from there, but then went to UCLA for um, for screenwriting at a later time. So somehow I covered four colleges and have literally only one official degree to show from it. So I wouldn't advise that path to anyone listening. If you've not, if you're in high school, do not do what I did.
1: <laughs> when <laughs> When did it first hit you that, you know, doing sports writing is something that you really wanted to do with your life? doesn't sound like it was something that, you know, you were born wanting to do. Did you experiment with kind of other things and decide, you know what, I want to be a sports writer or was it, or am I wrong? And was it pretty much from a very young age, you knew, this is what you wanted to do.
0: Well, I think if anything, I found it at a much younger age than you might. And some people might find the career that they fall into and then I abandoned it because of other things that I just found interesting in in my 20s. But I started, some of my earliest um, for, sort of a foray into sports writing was, you know, we had a, we had a weekly town paper, and it wasn't like a crushed deadline. It was like, it came out on, I believe, on Thursday evening, and, you know, they were looking for people at our high school to cover sports. You know, you're at the school, you know the players. If you weren't going to be on the team, like they were looking for writers to write these, these somewhat amateurish uh, columns. And that, like I remember just writing these massively overlong, overly long football columns, covering baseball. And our school had a, a closed circuit cable sports channel as well, where we would broadcast. There were school at, I, there were other like sort of school activities on there, but it was largely sports. And so it was kind of this incredible. Uh, at the time, in this incredible place, to find a way to write, but also to do some broadcasting, like uh, announcing everything from baseball to basketball to football to gymnastics—stuff that you were like, "I am awful at this, but if you just do it 15 times, you get a little bit better." Mm-hmm. And I really thought early on, this is what I want to do with my life. Like, um, I was pretty nerdy in that I would tape pregame NFL pre-game shows every week, and then the tape when the game would come on because the games are always on but I wanted to watch like these how they did these pre-game shows and, and we would do a couple field trips to Rockefeller Center and NBC and I was just obsessed with broadcasting but I, I think the issue was I had no idea how to get into it because back then it wasn't like go start your own podcast or you know do your own YouTube channel or, or Instagram live right. videos none of that was an option so it was like you can your, your move is to be one of like 15 people in the tri-state area that are on television. It's like, it just felt like such an impossible goal that at one point, I think when college came along, I abandoned, I just abandoned the entire thing for a very long time until coming back to, you know, the writing side of it at least.
1: Let me ask you this question because you brought something up here. The way you become a sports writer or, or a musician in today's day and age As opposed to, you know, the era that you're talking about, you know, worked your way up and stuff like that. Like in today's day and age, you want to be a writer or a broadcaster. One way to do it now, you know, like you just said, you start a podcast or you create a YouTube channel and it becomes popular. Next thing you know, your name's out there. Take music. You're not a perfect example. You know, you think of eras where, you know, you played at gigs and little clubs in hopes you'd get discovered. Nowadays, in today's world, it's American Idol and the voice and things like that where it becomes instant fame. You know what I mean? It's such a difference now, yeah. even say 15, 20 years ago the way it used to be.
0: Yeah, and that's it's funny because um, I, I completely remember being the kid in high school and we had a we had someone that lived up the street from us named Ira Joe Fisher who was someone who became a pretty sort of like Al Roker was the most famous weatherman in New York at the time. Uh, but Ira Joe Fisher was like his pinch hitter and also became quite big on his own. And he lived at the street. I wrote him a letter, like how, like the letter that everyone in one of his jobs gets all the time, like, how do you get into this? And I never thought he'd respond. And instead of, instead of ignoring it, he called me on the phone and wrote me this incredible, incredible letter in response. But he, I, I, one thing that I kind of remember from that letter was he sort of said, whatever I had to do will probably will be quite different than you. And it's the same thing that I think about whenever anyone asks because I never back when I went to college in 19, you know, the or the, the 1990s up until the mid 90s, you know, thinking, well, how would you chart out a broadcasting career or a career to be a writer or to do anything like this? It was such it was one path back then, and it couldn't be any different now. So anyone that's going that's in high school right now and wants to do this, like it's going to look so much different doubly triply by the time they do this you know when they're in their 20s and 30s and I just think that like the key word now is versatility like if you think you're going to be just a writer good luck you're you really are you're shutting down so many other avenues to uh you know interact with sports fans and to cover sports and so like you have to be more versatile than ever before and so I, I don't know how anyone could plan, from where they are now, what's going to happen in the next, you know, 15, 20 years, you got to just roll with the punches. Essentially. That's the only thing that I, that I would say is you just got to be super flexible.
1: Sure. I got to ask you this question before we move on. Cause I got some media and some football stuff that I want to talk to you about, but okay. So you're born in upstate New York. You grew up around that area. You go to high school in Connecticut, you bounce around some schools, you go to UCLA. I know you live in Los Angeles how did, I need to know the story. How did you become a Cleveland Browns fan?
0: Right. Well, largely because I'm an idiot, I think. Let's start right there. <laughs> I mean, how did, how did I possibly come up with this decision? My dad was a, my dad loved two teams. He loved the Bills and he loved the Giants. And there was a reason for both. They didn't conflict much. And so it wasn't like, you know, I, I thought it was cool. He like both teams, but the giant, we watched the Giants every week. This was 1986 season. And I had a friend named Chris who moved to my town and into my class from Ohio, and we became best friends. And I remember him just saying, you've got to follow the Browns, enough with this, because I was a Cowboys fan at the time, briefly, because of that Herschel Walker obsession. And he slowly, over the course of this autumn in 1986, and the Browns were very good. They had they had Ernest spiner they had Kevin Mack, Bernie Kosar, Marty Schottenheimer taking over. That team went 12-4 and and, and and essentially took the number one seat in the AFC. So when you're a kid, I was like, they are on Monday Night Football a couple times. I watched them. I really liked their vibe. I felt for them completely. And all my friends who were Giants fans a couple later, were a couple of months later were celebrating that iconic Giants Super Bowl win. And the Browns had essentially lost in the drive. And it was one of the most crushing sports victories into the sixth grade version of me. (laughs) I could not comprehend what what had happened. And then a year later, the fumble happened. And by then, I was so obsessed that I knew the names of players, wives. I knew how many children they had. I I mean, it was like literally everything about the Browns. My whole room was dedicated to the Browns. So for the fumble to happen after, you could have gone one of two ways, basically. I could have said, I'm going to jump ship because this is obviously an introduction to pain as a sports fan. We already know it's we're, we're two years in and it's been a really rough ride. And I it said, you know what, I'm going to dig in. And I dug in and when they moved, it was like, I just can't let it go. And ultimately like Browns fans from that period till now have been given so little to celebrate that you could just say you are an idiot. You could have enjoyed this fan experience by picking a different team. But once you pick, you can't really, I don't, some can, I can't, I can't change. I can't change what I did. So I look back still and just, I marvel at the fact that I somehow wound up with the Browns of all teams. I never, I have no concept of what Cleveland was, as a city or anything. And I had the giants at my fingertips and the Cowboys, frankly. And I just let them, I just made this bizarre decision. So, you know, there are, I'm sure there are other sports fans all the time saying, how on earth did I come to this, to this place of all
1: places? It's just weird because of your geographic location. But now that you laid it out, it, ma- it makes good sense. And I, you know, to some level, you know, I'm a Buffalo guy. I lived my whole life in Buffalo until the past few years I moved down to Florida. I kind of feel like Bills and Browns fans can relate. Now, minus the four years, you know, where Buffalo went to the Super Bowl, four straight years, you know, they were really good for, I don't know, seven, eight years. But beyond that, I mean, Buffalo just this past year came off 17 years without making the playoffs. So if there's any fan base that can kind of relate to the to the trials and tribulations of being a Browns fan, I, I kind of feel like it's Buffalo Bills fans.
0: I totally agree with that. And I've never it's it's possible for me to dislike the Bills, a because you know, the Western New York and upstate New York is a part of my past. But secondly, like these are two cities that if you started, if you were to start the NFL all over again with minus the tradition of the past. It's, very it's I don't know if Buffalo gets a football team. And I think Cleveland is equally kind of, made. you know, they're the center of jokes. Um, you know, outside of LeBron's cast, it's been a really rough ride for that city. And so I, I see a lot of shared DNA. And I, I'll never forget that one playoff game they had in 1989. It was one of the great AFC playoff games of all time and you'd rather just see them both go on. And that really was I thought the beginning of that Buffalo Bills team. Oh no, when doubt. they lost that game to Cleveland, but what came of that team is incredible. Cleveland fizzled out the next season. The Bills went on to four Super Bowls.
1: Yeah, you're referring to the game where Ronnie Harmon dropped a pass in the end zone and then I think Clay Matthews on the very next play intercepted it and Cleveland went on to win that game. I remember
0: that game. That's exactly
1: right. We probably yep. have different and, and recollections I think it's
0: Thurman Thomas well Thurman Thomas was named the MVP Sure. Uh, before the game ended. I mean, how often in a playoff game is someone from the losing team named the MVP by the people broadcasting? It was that kind of a bizarre game.
1: Let me ask you this. Now they Cleveland moves to Baltimore at that point, And then they come back to Cleveland. You know, they have an expansion team. Were you right back on board with Cleveland or did it take a little bit of time, you know, to get over the fact that they left to begin with.
0: I was fully on board because what, what kind of gets lost a little bit about, because that was a three-year sit-and-wait for the Browns to come back, and so the first season they were gone was, was 96, and, you know, it was really weird to watch. I was still, I was down in D.C., and so Ravens games were televised locally, and the year before I had been in D.C., at, this is when I was at American University, watching the Browns being billed as an, an almost perfect Super Bowl contender under Bill Belichick. Then the move happened, and they crumbled. The next year, you're watching, I would say, probably 65% of the same roster in Ravens uniforms with, on that team, two players that Ozzie Newsom, who was in Cleveland's front office, wanted to draft in Jonathan Ogden and Ray Lewis. And the idea that those two went on to terrorize Cleveland for you know a decade-plus is insane, just how the whole thing went down. So it was very weird, and like there was that first season where you had no idea what was going to happen to the Browns, but the grassroots level in Cleveland to get a team back was so immediate, and it was such a national issue. Because back then, like the idea that the Cleveland Browns, they're not thought of the way they are today. The 25-year-old person today thinks the Browns have just always been a joke. That was the one team, if the Cleveland Browns can move, Anyone can move, and I think it was a be, it became a national sports issue, and to some degree a national issue. And the thing was, though, that by the the second year that the Browns were out of the league, there was a pretty clear indication that they were going to be an expansion team. That that became finalized, and they didn't have as much time to plan as say the Texans or the Jaguars or the Panthers, but they were given enough where fans knew they're coming back in '99. And I don't really know too many Browns fans that jump ship. I I can't name any Browns fan that I know who went to the Ravens. I think it was pretty clear cut from the beginning that no one was going to take that path. If they faded away from football altogether, that's fine. But it wasn't like they were gone for 15 years. So I think a lot of people stuck it out. But then what you got on the other end was an unbelievable disappointment.
1: What was the process and how you landed at NFL.com writing for them?
0: Uh, the process? Well, so like I had done that early sports writing in high school and I went to college for some of that. And then I kind of just sort of left it uh, to uh, pursue other things. Just I wanted to do screenwriting. That's what got me to UCLA. I wanted to do, uh, you know, uh, other types of writing or just I wanted to kind of do nothing at all. I was tired of spending, you know, 10 years with all these plans. And like, I, I feel like with a lot of people in their, 20s and 30s, you know, maybe to an annoying extent, like, kind of kind of wander around. And, and I moved from city to city and uh, really without a big plan in general. And, like, when I got to the NFL, it was after years of being in Los Angeles working as a corporate writer um, at some pretty, some comp- some jobs that I well, I think were not very fulfilling, to say the least, and but just trying to, like, stay in L.A. to... You you know financially to keep it going, and basically after I got married, um, I had been I was working for a big four big four accounting firm as a proposal writer, which is a pretty desperate um, corner to be stuck into if you're interested in writing. It's pretty desperate, and except it paid well because it was such a hideous job, and so there was that. But I basically had a friend because NFL Network was located very close to where, where I lived at the time. And I would even jog by it sometimes and think, "Hmm, that would be that would be cool to work there." But again, being like, "Well, that ship has sailed." But they were ramping up a little, and I had a friend that took a three day a week editing job, and just said, "Look, they're looking for other people," and I was like, "I haven't done sports writing in over a decade. I like I just don't know what, how to get in the door." And they're like, "They're they're really looking for people." This was not the way it is today. There, it's like they were really just trying to ramp up. So. To make a long story short, I um, met this one editor named Justin Hathaway, who had worked in newspapers for years. And he, he um, basically said, look, I see you have no experience that's recent at all, but let's give it a shot. And that started it. I took it with a huge pay cut um, to go take a job that was not really even part-time, like sub-part-time. And then the, then the lockout happened. The following year and like you just thought this could have been one of the worst decisions and when i got there i was awful at editing and had and completely forgotten how to write a news story if i ever knew how to in the first place so <laughs> it was a bit of a a bit of a perilous like start and the fact that it kind of worked has a lot to do with the people who were running the ship being kind of patient with the people they hired i think and then you know just through reps you kind of get more plugged in and it kind of grew from there we started to do more writing and then years down the road, um, Dan, Dan Hansis was hired soon after, and we started our podcast and, and there you go. Kind of just kind of grew into these different aspects of the job.
1: Who are a few of your biggest sports media influences?
0: Well, I, I, um, I mean, when I was young, I would take everything I could off of, um, you know, anything that was available on television, just to see how they did it night. Mark Albert was a huge, someone that I listened to on radio, uh, and then on TV. And back then, like, there just weren't that many people covering the local sports scene. So you even could could get a bit of a look in as to how does Marv Albert announce a Knicks game on the radio versus how he does it on television. And, I like, there's a distinct difference. And you could just find out how versatile and talented he was. Um, I, I like the young version of Bob Costas. I realize today people a lot of people have issues with him, but when he was really young um, and running sort of N- the NFL pregame show, I just thought it was incredible. at television. Sure. He was a really skilled baseball announcer who, you know, was doing a job that people often didn't stumble into for 20 more years. Um, I, I, the, the list goes on and on, but like from a writing angle, like it, it, back then I would read the local reporters from my local paper And then go to these games and be kind of awestruck when I'd see them, you know, sitting on a hill covering a baseball game. And it was like, these are just dudes making, it was just a normal job for them. But when I was like 14 or 15, it was like they were doing what you wanted to do when you were older. And they were the closest you could get to it. So there was really no, the list went on and on. And anyone that kind of I found could make sports more interesting than just stats and tell a story be funny. And like back then listening to WFAN, it was those FAN hosts who would host shows for three or four hours. It was like, this is how you host a sports show. You talk to fans for three or four hours and I'd wake up at like, you know, two, three, four in the morning and they'd still be going. And I thought, this is the job. This is a cool job. And so there's a laundry list of those dudes. And a lot of it was probably more radio than TV.
1: Now you alluded to, you know, being younger, and going to games and seeing sports writers or people you know, on the broadcasters and things like that in the press box and being a little starstruck. And now I'm sure there's a younger generation of people who might feel that way towards you, you know, because of what you get to do. You think of the good part of everything that you do. Let me ask you this, though. What's the toughest part of your job that someone who wants to become a writer or just someone who's a fan of what you do may not realize? Well, I don't know. if
0: the, I don't it's, it's hard to say there's something that's super tough where it's like, how do you possibly get over this? Because one thing that I find is that covering any... If you were to be a reporter of any sort of field, you it, it always helps just to have more and more accrued years because you kind of understand... Like, the first couple of years covering the NFL, it's like, oh, wait, the season ends, so now do we just take, like, a four-month nap? It's like, no. Now the combine happens. Now the yeah. meetings happens. Now the draft... Like, you realize, like, oh, there's this biorhythm to the season and free agency and everything else. Like, it really, depending on the level of coverage, it really never ends. So one challenge, I think, is getting up to speed with how whatever sport you cover works. And a lot of it is, we all understand when the games are on, but what are the other parts of the off-season and the season itself? And learning how to kind of adjust with that, which I think, you know, that's also balancing you know, your own exhaustion and your own like personal times so that you can be kind of the best you can be. And I don't always do great at that. Like you can get burnt out sometimes. It's like, and I think a lot of times if you talk to football reporters, it's, it's around that kind of post Thanksgiving through end of the regular season time, where, especially if you're covering a team or you're just covering a league where a big chunk of teams don't matter anymore, like the like wh- that's where the real challenge comes in, because for us, especially covering all 32 teams, we try to watch a lot of film. We'll watch those condensed 30-minute games. And, you know, when it's September and October, the, the zeal is off the charts, and you're watching everyone, and you're tweeting about every little player and new rookie that catches your eye. But then it starts to get into the grind in November and December. And I and it, it, this was a huge, it still is a learning point for me. It's like, how do I keep my energy up? at that point in the season because it shouldn't be any less important than the beginning in fact the games are much more important but probably just for some fewer teams so it's really just kind of managing i think energy level and like like you, you want your articles or your analysis to be just as good in december as it is in you know late august or september and i think that for me is still a learning a gap. It's a learning process because of the, the grind of the nature. Does the, the nature of the job does have a little bit of a, a grind aspect? So, how do you keep it fresh? How do you stay excited? How do you make other people feel the same
1: way? I'm talking to Mark Sessler from NFL.com. Who's the toughest athlete you've ever had to deal with when it comes to your job? Now, I'm not talking necessarily the worst person, you know, or the biggest jerk or anything like that. I'm talking about is there an athlete who may have given you a tougher time than anyone else when it comes to maybe getting a story or something that you need or want.
0: Um, you know, I I'm pretty lucky because I think where that seems to happen, I think is if you are in the same locker room day after day and you've got to write honestly about a player having a bad season. Um, I think those relationships can really ebb and flow. And what we do is we really kind of descend in on Super Bowl week, or we we drop in on the combine. And talk to coaches and players, but they don't see us on a day-to-day um, kind of relationship level. And so, I think the tough—I would say the toughest thing—is sh- like having trust out of the gate because they don't—they don't look—they don't look, look at you, they don't know you, which happens all the time. They're not going to give you better information than someone else. Uh, one thing that really I find challenging is because athletes are busy too, coaches are busy. Where um, I've gotten frustrated is when you're trying to write maybe a longer feature, a long form, and, you know, it's, there's a due date, and you try to get people on the phone when they've said they will be available, and then they ghost you or it just doesn't happen. And that can be extremely frustrating because you could have, you know, a big leg of your story or a big chunk of something you're working on, you know, dedicated to that, and the deadline doesn't change just because player X is deciding not to return your calls. So that doesn't happen often. I think the, the one thing that I've found um, that probably helps coming from NFL network versus um, another outlet is the PR people for NFL teams, I think are, are, are go out of their way to help um, players are typically pretty respectful. Coaches especially are um, if, if they have some sense of what it is you're calling about. So overall, like I, I'm almost happily surprised by the, um, the availability and the willingness of people to talk, as long as you're not going you just you can't you can't break the trust. I think as long as you as long as you're honor honorable about what you said the thing would be about, what the questions to be about, and then they are, people are really pretty great for the most part, I find.
1: You touched on this a little bit earlier. The world of sports media is changing. Like for an example, my hometown, the Buffalo News, the sports department got purged recently. Three longtime writers they're out for various reasons. You know, reports are, they vary on why they're gone. But bottom line is they're gone. And that's happening at newspapers all over the country. You know, large newspapers that used to be daily. I've Some major cities are down to three days a week now. Do you think the print newspaper is in as much trouble as it seems? Especially, in, like you said, today's age, when you have podcasts and blogs and all kinds of video things and stuff like that. Do you really feel like the newspaper industry is in trouble right now?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I have a friend that works um, for the Denver Post, and it's the same stories. And so I don't, you know, I, if anything, like, you know, like I, I left the industry for so long that I never, I had a couple of newspaper jobs, um, worked as a copy editor at the Boulder Daily Camera, but it's like these newspaper jobs essentially are vanishing at such a level and so many great writers are being released that, I I don't understand what would reverse the cycle. And I think they could answer better than me, but they're the ones in it. And you're watching these like really, uh, you know, people with incredible longevity and experience in these deeply embedded NFL, NBA, MLB cities lose work and try to hang on or sign on with the athletic or something else like that. And I think that probably the... The signals ahead of time that said things are changing have been there for two decades, and it's it's been tough for newspapers to convert. I think people from you know the daily print type stuff where you get it in your driveway—that's a certain age of person—to paying for something online, which many just won't agree to do because the problem now is such a waterfall of access and coverage that. I remember growing up, like I would like fight my brother to get USA Today when it would arrive every day. because It's like <laughs> the only way to look at a box score. Right. Like, this is the only way I can see this box score and these Monday morning like papers that have every NFL box score. It's like, if I want to go to school and have these conversations with my friends and just because I love this sport, like I need to have serious FaceTime with that USA Today before I get my ride to school. No, now today it's like, Why, why on earth would you need to wait even until Monday morning to look at this? Like it's in all in real time. So newspapers are providing incredible coverage when they're allowed to. And uh, I think there's obviously also major, you know, structural issues that are, we don't need to tell anyone that it's like newspapers are burning to the ground all over the place. I think it's very concerning and very real.
1: What's your take on social media like Twitter and Instagram? Because On one hand, it's beneficial to your job, you know, being able to provide instant news and instant free promotion for, you know, things that you're working on. So it serves a really good purpose on one hand. But on the other, and I'm sure you know this, you know, as a professional writer, especially on Twitter, I don't know Instagram that well. I know Twitter very well. It could be a really nasty place with trolls and people just who want to say nasty things to you in your mentions for most times for no reason because they don't agree with something you wrote you know, or they don't like the team that you're covering and things like that. What's your take on social media in general and how it pertains to your job?
0: Well, I think you pretty much nailed how I feel because I I can see, number one, that without Twitter, like it would be much harder to reach um, people that love football, that want to read about it, they want to follow you. And, and it does help to work for like the NFL. And when they retweet, something that you've written or, or, you know, put your, put your handle in there with something that, that was produced on the site or part of our podcast getting tweeted out in the video form from a handle with a million plus uh, followers. There's an incredible benefit to that. And so you need it um, at the same time, like when I'm on vacation, like I am this week, like all I want to do is get away from Twitter and it's not to be totally negative about it. It's just like you, I, for me, I just think there are, there's kind of like times it's really wonderful and helpful times where it's the last thing that I want to deal with. Um, I certainly have like when the negativity thing, you just kind of have to also like have a super thick skin because I'll never forget back when I first started writing for NFL.com, I would sit there at home at night and read like the comments under the post, which is obviously a bad idea, but some people would be like, you know, I remember I got a comment once like you're dumb and your children are dumb. And it's like, Whoa, that was okay. Yeah, Like that's a little uh, bit much, but it's like at the same time, like if you kind of just say there are like a huge chunk of fans that are awesome. It takes time. It took time for me because I'm not great at this, but you just got to like say, I don't care. I don't care. Like, what can they do? You know?
1: I hear you. Let's turn real quick. I want to turn my attention towards something that I'm sure you like much more than social media and that's podcasting how do you feel about podcasting? Is this something you really enjoy doing or is this something that you consider, you know, just part of the gig that comes with your career? Because like I mentioned it, they're on the NFL podcast. That's a very successful podcast. It's very well done. It's constantly ranked in the top, you know, anywhere from 60 to 80, always in the top 80 on the Apple podcast chart. So it's a really good podcast. Well, I
0: appreciate that. And like, uh, I I think that's, like the quintessential example of a group effort, because whenever I think, whenever any of us are not there, uh, depending on what why it is you like the show, something's missing because we have not Greg Rosenthal and Chris Westling. I think two of the top football analysts uh, around. No doubt, they've been doing it for so long. That they've got historical knowledge. Uh, Dan and I. Dan Dan is an, Dan. I think has grown as a host in a way that if you go listen to early early episodes, like. He really, that has become an incredible skill set for him. His humor is really unlike anything else. He's such a passion for the show. And like so many of the segments we do, they were like, well, that was a weird segment. How did that show up on a football podcast? Well, it's because of Dan. And like, so we all, I think, bring our personalities. um, We respect each other. We're friends. You know, we have ups and downs like anyone else. But we're into year five or six at this point. And like you asked if I enjoy it. It's it, when, when it's when I am enjoy when I am enjoying it it is the best part of the job no questions asked and the, the times that I this is a self critique like there's just times when like you get into November and December I'm just tired and I'm like I have to do a better job of like just keeping it going but there's never a time when I don't look at it and say this started with Dan and I saying let's do a little five or six minute show that went on the end of dave damashek's podcast Did he had he not chosen to allow that to happen like I'm, i don't even know what would if there would be in around the nfl podcast and there's tons of podcasts so it's like you got to keep making it the best show you can and it could all end at some point but I, I know that when i'm looking back on all this stuff i'll never think about like oh that some article i wrote now, i think those things are kind of the meat and potatoes of, of the work, but the podcast is what I'll always think of. And it's really essentially, it's not even because of football, it's just because of the other people on the show. And there's, it, it goes beyond the other three guys. There's, 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 a, there's other characters that we bring on repeatedly who I love. And like, I think that's, that's why it's enjoyable because it's a per, it's a, it's kind of an experience with other people. And a lot of it is humor based and it's weird. And like the football part sometimes is half of it. It could be much more, but it can sometimes be less.
1: Now, between writing, of course, and your podcast, you know, and having a family and all that stuff, you don't have a lot of time. But when you do, are there any other podcasts out there that, you know, you follow with at least some form of regularity?
0: Um, I'm pretty bad about that because I know, for instance, like Greg Rosenthal listens to, he talks about listening to a lot of other pods. I think those other guys probably listen to more than I do. And like, my escape would be, just different. I don't like I, I it's not that I like not seek them out, but it's just not the first thing that I do. And if any if you really wanted to like critique my effort, I don't often listen to our own podcast. And I think yeah. actually that is a smart thing to do because you can be like, why do I keep you know interrupting? Or perhaps as people would think about on this show, why is he talk for like five minutes in a row without stopping? It's like you sometimes <laughs> if you listen if you listen to yourself, you're like Oh, wait, stop doing that. Yeah. So I, like, I, I would. I probably should be listening to the, our own show before I listen to other stuff more. So
1: <laughs> <laughs> You're 100% right, and I feel the exact same way. Let, let me circle back to the Browns real quick here. I'm going to talk about a couple current NFL things as we start to wrap up. You wrote about last week about Hugh Jackson in Cleveland about a week or so ago. This past Thursday, I had Mary Kay Cabot on my show. Love her. And she was talking about some of the talent that Cleveland's added this off season. And had, they have added a lot of talent. What do you think their wind ceiling is for this year?
0: Um, I, I think they can honestly, because I think in the NFL, like a really bad team could go five and 11. And I, I think they, I think they should have gone. They should have won four games last year and they probably should have won about four games the year before. and And so I think there's incredible pressure on the coaching staff to say, listen, you now got all these players that you said were kept from you by the previous regime. All right. You cannot churn out a three win season. There's too much talent on that, on that roster. And I, I I don't think eight and eight is crazy, but I can also probably pick two years out of the past three or four, where in the middle of June, I said the same thing about the Browns. And It's just (laughs) like, how wrong could you possibly have been? So it's got to go right. I think with them, but one thing that one thing that it happens sometimes seems to happen with crappier teams every team has injuries the better ones find a way to navigate it cleveland over you know over way too many seasons since they returned have endured injuries that just simply sunk the campaign by like mid october they haven't had a quarterback play 16 games since tim couch did it in 2001 so whether it's baker mayfield or at this point it's much more likely that Tyrod Taylor starts the year, like you need a healthy, quality quarterback on the field to compete in that division, number one. And it's like, how do you get out of your own division when the Steelers and Ravens have been, you know, you can talk about the Patriots in the East, and that's absolutely a major roadblock for the other three teams in the East. But the Steelers and Ravens are no treat. And then you had had the Bengals, you know, operating with one of the better rosters for a five or six year stretch too. So I think Cleveland can win. If they if they were if they go six and ten and it's a good six and ten where by the end of the year you see them drop a hammer on a playoff contender, you see growth, that would be really positive. I think they could be a bad not a bad, but like an eight and eight team where it's like, well they weren't eight and eight. Or they could they could go three and eleven, the wheels could fall off and Hugh Jackson's out of a job by Halloween. Like I, I just think that So much will dictate early on in the year what happens because I think there's you know, I I think the coaching staff is under so much pressure that if they if they get out to a really ugly start, the patience for Hugh Jackson, Hugh Jackson willingly or or, you know, I think at this point wouldn't make sense for the patience to run out. It's like he's been given a chance that almost no other NFL coach has to come back from the two seasons he's had.
1: Now last week on NFL Network, good morning football. I saw former Colts head coach Chuck Pagano on there. You know, he said that he'd like to get another opportunity to be a head coach. Do you think that's something that's going to happen?
0: I mean, I'd say the odds are no, because one thing with Pagano, I mean, he, it's sort of like you want it. Like, I think now you find these coaches, like a Kyle Shanahan, where they said, listen, his specialty is offense. Do you find him a quarterback? What happened to the Niners down the down the stretch? They look incredible. And I think with, like, Matt Nagy in Chicago, it's like, this is a guy who's all about offense. So if that, if that, or Sean McVay with the Rams, if, if they maximize their roster with what people say that they're great at, well, all right, then that's, that's how you hire someone who's a specialist. And Pagano was always a guy who talked about, look, I'm a defensive guy, and I have Andrew Luck as my quarterback, you know, up until the past couple of seasons where that's been a total haywire situation. But Pagano's defenses were never good. I, the front office didn't help him at all. But he, I think he probably stuck around there, as he mentioned, a year and a half too long or so. And I, I you know, the trend is going to be finding the ne- for the next couple of years, the next Sean McVay, you know, the next Kyle Shanahan, and Pagano right now. And it's a tough thing for coaches. I think he has a retread kind of vibe to him. It's like, what is it that Chuck Pagano does that you can convince your fan base this is special? Because there's really not that many of those guys. I think. You know Pagano. By the end of the Colts' experience, that that was you know the shine was off. It's like go show that you can be a top defensive coordinator. I like the person. It's not that I think everyone thinks he's a good guy. It's just like another head coaching job. Like they just don't exist for you to plug in someone that failed utterly down the stretch of his previous two two or three seasons.
1: Now you, along with Adam Rank, have started a series on each NFL team and. In- Listing five reasons why each team will make the playoffs in 2018. When are the Buffalo mm. Bills coming? Are you doing them, Dad? I'm doing it. Who's doing the Bills?
0: Well, I don't know who's on the docket to do it, but I'll. If you want to go back to why social media is not fun, like um, be the author or the the half author or the co-author of that series, because <laughs> every time you know, it's like here's why team that went four and twelve is going to make the playoffs and it is just people coming out of the woodwork to destroy you. So, <laughs> you know, there's that. But with the Bills, I mean, I, like they they got there last year. I like the coaching staff a lot. I think they have a lot they had a they had more holes to fill than their record showed last year. Absolutely. And you, right, and you've got that you got the Patriots in the division until we find out the Patriots are not the Patriots. That's a that's let's just chalk them up as the division winner. So, you've got to make a wild card and the AFC is vulnerable, much more so than the NFC, which is so stocked. So, uh, you know, the thing is, are you going to be starting three different quarterbacks this season the same way that Denver Broncos did a year ago, which I think usually, you know, it leads to chaos and if they put Josh Allen in there, is there enough around him for him to be put into a successful situation the same way, you know, some other rookies are? There's just a lot of question marks. I just think that What that team should finally do, that ownership group, is show extreme patience because they've been moving through coaches and coaching staffs, and they've got a plan in place. And it doesn't need to happen this year. That said, you know, like I think a bad team in the AFC—not a bad team, but a lower-level team in the AFC—could win eight or nine games if they stayed healthy and everything went right. But that's the one I write this article. I've got a, I got a. Hyper focused everything positive. If everything went right for the Bills, yes, they could be a wild
1: card team. Let me ask you this question, because you you know the other guy. While well, I'm sure, what were your thoughts on the Bills drafting Josh Allen? Was were you surprised? Because ultimately, it came down the way the draft played out. It came down to him or Josh Rosen in that seven spot when Buffalo moved up. And as you know, you live in LA, so I'm pretty sure you're familiar with Josh Rosen out there because he played for UCLA. So were you just a little bit surprised that Buffalo took Josh Allen instead of Rosen? And what are your thoughts on Josh Rosen?
0: Well, I would have been almost surprised either way. And I, in, in our role, because we're so needy in the pros, we really don't plug in with the college guys until the draft process, you know, gets, gets pretty hot. Um, watching three or four, Josh Rosen games from last season. I really, really think he is going to be a successful. I think he's probably the guy that you could plug into the right team. And he'd have the highest, one of the higher floors. And I think with, with Josh Allen, what you're hoping for, and I think there's certain, a certain type of NFL scout that when they look at Josh Allen, the body type, and they look at the, the higher moments of his game tape and what he can do physically, they're freaking out, and I get that, because it's like there are just some things where you're like, if this clicks, this could be a completely, unusually, massive, dominating-type quarterback, but he's got all these red flags from college, and I just I just would be more content if the Bills said, you have A.G. McCarron, you know, you have Nathan Peterman, who they loved last offseason. They gushed over him, mm-hmm. and we, we haven't seen enough to judge him. I don't know why you need to push Josh Allen onto the field yet until... He's dominating practice, you know, behind the scenes, the stuff the coaches see that we won't see. And if he's not, like, I just there's no reason to do anything but sort of slow, slow cook him. And and I I think he's a fascinating prospect. And I kind of I, everyone everyone wants to put you know like a, a a blue ribbon or an F an F mark on these picks. Now it's like how wrong could we all be so so many times to stop prejudging these guys? I like them both. But I, but I think it comes down to like when they're when the when the bills are putting their draft board together. Is it the scouts that are like loving what Josh Allen can do, or there's people willing to take a, ch- a chance on Rosen? Because I think some teams were not into the Josh Rosen overall experience, and there were questions lingering: Is this guy who, uh, someone who wants to be in the NFL for 15 years? And with Josh Allen, like from what you hear, like he's all in from a kind of a student perspective. So that's a plus. Not to say that Rosen isn't. We just
1: don't know. I got to touch on this because for me, this was really cool. Last month, you wrote a great feature story. You and five NFL players, Carlos Dunlap, Mark Ingram, Latavius Murray, Ben Garland, Mario Edison, and former head coach, former Buffalo Bills head coach, Rex Ryan, went overseas as part of the USO's effort to show American service, men and women, you know, there's some appreciation, some love. What was that experience like for you? It had to be pretty incredible.
0: It was so cool because I would say I even went in myself, you know, both of my, both of my grandfathers were in the military, um, in world war II. And so, you know, I always had heard stories, um, about, you know, the experience of being in the military, but I was not. And I'm probably cynical enough where, you know, I look at some things that have happened, um, with our country and would, you know, I think, I don't know, I'm not, maybe wasn't the most, not, I was certainly, I was pro-military, but I wasn't someone that like thought about it all the time that way, that I had questions about our country. That's who I was going into this. And it was such an incredible experience going to these bases because they're bases that a U.S. citizen, this, these were in Italy and Germany, would never have access to. Um, and to find out what's going on, like in terms of a day-to-day work life for these soldiers. I, I think all of us came away just, like, totally impressed with who they were, um, kind of the way they're built, neck up, and just, like, the way they approach their jobs. I, I was really, really, it changed, it just sort of changed something to me. And I think also, from another angle, for all the stuff the NFL's been through, last season and continues to go through, um, with perceptions around patriotism and perceptions around, you know, social activism, like, I'm looking at five players in an NFL coach who could have been anywhere in the world, and this is what they did with their time. And I don't want—I don't even want to overfluff that because they had a great time. Like it wasn't a chore for them. It wasn't this. It's like it was such. They it's so that's just who they were. This is something they had done before. All of them had the previous experience with the USO, and they're continuing to. I know Ben Garland is going overseas again with his next, you know, allotted vacation time. So these guys are using their own personal time to go give something back. And it's like, for me, it was a concrete example of something positive after a season filled with incredible negatives. Um, I, get, I get that there's different viewpoints, but from what I saw, I was like, you try to tell me these players, and you try to tell me Rex Ryan for all the critique these guys take all the time. And someone like Rex, who, spending a week with him, was like, you know, I, I, I was like, how many articles have I written where I had to flame this guy, or I chose to flame him, or how many times on our show do you not really know the inside story? And just to hear some of his tales about what he'd been through and how loyal he was to people that worked under him, it's like you just come away with a completely different impression of these five players and this coach. It was pretty great.
1: That's tremendous. One more question, and then I'm going to get to the mini lightning round to wrap this up. So you're born, you know, like we talked about, upstate New York, you move out to LA. How do you like living out in LA? How different is it living out in? I've never been there. Living out in LA as opposed to living in the East Coast because you've done both.
0: Well, I miss the East Coast a lot, um, but I love LA. I chose to come out here. I moved out here for a very brief time in the late '90s and flamed out financially, like in such a quick amount of time that it was like I basically jumped right back onto the Greyhound bus back to the East Coast. It did not mm-hmm. work, and I was like, I'm gonna. I had to get back there. And I always had an interest, as much as in football, in in stories and film and stuff. And so, for me, it was a goal to come out to LA. I think if it were not, it's a tougher town when you um, when you get married and you have kids. I think a lot. It's it's a more complex place to operate in. In like we're feeling that in our house. Um, I don't know how long. Like I think you know you're there for now. It's it's seventy three degrees every day. Everyone is young and beautiful. I mean, it's like there's no end to. The amount of restaurants you could explore, what parts of town you could go to, and just outside of LA, you're two hours away from San Diego. You're you're you could go to the beach, you can go to the mountains, you could go deep into the forest and go hiking, or go to like 25 national parks. So it's like, I love California. It is way too expensive. I mean, right? We've been renting and we'll be renting till the end of time if we don't figure something out. So I think if you're living, you know, we were in Albany, my wife and I, for it was a family reunion two summers ago and we were going by these like houses that were like, Hey, you know, this house is up for rent or it's up for sale. And we were like, you know, we, when you have a wife and you don't have a house and you've been married for a long time, she's like, let's, can we figure this out, please? And we were looking at these, the prices of these homes in upstate New York or near, in the Albany area. We're just like, my God, it's not even like a half of our rent. And so (laughs) from a materialistic angle, LA is rough. Um, but I love LA and I would stay here until I was a hundred years old. If, if it were, if life would could could allow for that, I don't know if it will. And I love the East coast too. So at least I know there's somewhere else that I would return to really happily.
1: Okay. Just like every week, I'm going to end this with a little mini lightning round. Just going to ask you a quick handful of questions, not too much. thinking required whatever comes in your mind, just pop it off. All right. Cool. Cool. All right. Favorite athlete you've ever written about? Oof.
0: Um, well, you know, I, I love when I get to write about uh, here and there. It doesn't happen a lot, but my old Browns players that I grew up following—they get dropped into articles here and there. The Ernest Byners, the Kevin Max, the Bernie Kosars, Marty Schottenheimer—that's why I got into this. And so whenever they, whenever their name comes across a story. And I've done a lot of Brown stuff like that just kind of brings you back to what I love about it.
1: Favorite activity to do when you're not working.
0: I uh, love to go out for beers, love to read, love to write kind of my own stuff on the side. Um, love hanging out with my kids, you know, it, going to movies. That's you asked for one thing I gave you way too many. Sorry.
1: Favorite city to visit.
0: Wow. I mean, New York city. If I, if I, if I, if I, here in LA. I love going to New York. A second place for me because I have some friends there. I think Denver's cool. I love Denver.
1: What's the best sports movie ever?
0: For me, the first thing that came into my mind is The Natural.
1: Part of it filmed in Buffalo, New York, by the way.
0: There you go.
1: If you had never gotten involved, and I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this question from my interview, but I got to ask it anyway. If you never got involved in journalism in any capacity, what do you think you may have ended up doing with your life? I mean,
0: I just think I would have done another type of writing or I mean, I guess if I really went corporate, I could have done public relations. But I, I every I kind of like kept finding some of them were very humiliating, but just sort of writing jobs every everywhere I could. And so I think it would be that it would be fine if it weren't journalism, if it were something else along in the, in that world.
1: Second last question here. If Twitter sent you a note and said, hey, Mark, you're only allowed to follow one person on Twitter and one person only who do you think it would probably be and why? It's really tough. Cause I
0: probably would think I'd want to follow some of my friends, but then it's like which friend. And I, I do kind of love every time I see an update. Um, I don't know if you ever heard of like the coffee dad guy who I think was cool, like in 2011, but it's basically like, I'm pretty sure it's a fake person, but like a dad simply tweeting, uh, must have coffee, like coffee, <laughs> time to have coffee, time to brew a coffee on my third coffee. It's like that's the entire Twitter feed. And then occasionally he'll hint at a much greater tragedy that happened in his life. And it's a very strange account. Uh, and I also would know that I could essentially log on to Twitter maybe once every 60 days. And I know what I'd be missing. Like I, I wouldn't be missing much. So it would be convenient.
1: Last question here. Same as I ask everyone. You have three dinner guests from any era dead or alive, who you got?
0: Oh man, for me, like not thought about this question before, but I would love to um, have a dinner where, where Jack Kerouac was there. One of the first writers that kind of blew my mind from a novel perspective. Um, I've always thought about, I mean, I'm just going to who comes to mind. I think, I think Don Kennedy would be someone who would be fascinating to hang with. And, You know, maybe someone like, uh, well, it's weird because I think, I love Dana Carvey, which I know a lot of people are like, really? Like, But I think he's hilarious. Um, But if if he were not available, I would maybe go like a George Lucas and be like, can I please have information or a Mark Hamill information that I've always wanted to know about? You know, the first movie I ever saw, Star Wars, and (laughs) just kind of pick that guy's brain. So it's kind of a cavalcade of like kind of hero worship people from when I was younger.
1: All right, everyone. Mark Sessler, NFL.com. We're on the NFL podcast. Thank you so much for your time. Not just for your time, for a lot of your time, and not just for a lot of your time, but some of your vacation time. I really truly appreciate you having on being on the show.
0: Hey, it was it was fun. Like I really enjoyed it. So um it was no uh, it was no sacrifice, and I'm glad we could we could get it done.
1: Okay, that's a wrap for this episode. Big thank you to Mark Sessler from NFL.com and Around the NFL podcast for coming on. I enjoyed that conversation and picked up a lot of good insight, not just about football, but about sports media and a lot of other things. Mark really seems like a great dude. It was a lot of fun having him on the show. Coming up on Monday's podcast Like I said, at the top of the show, I have Yahoo Sports NBA Insider and Analyst Jordan Schultz as my guest. Really looking forward to that. I'm also really looking forward to you going on Apple Podcasts and hitting that subscribe button. Like I say, every time in this spot right here, it's totally quick, it's totally easy, and it's totally free. You subscribe and bam new episodes automatically get sent to your phone. If you like what's going on with that episode, download it and listen. If you don't, then delete it. Simple as that, my friends. I also encourage you to follow me on Twitter at Pat Morant Tweets. Always have show information and some thoughts and news and notes and stuff like that on my Twitter. So go check that out. And as always, I cannot thank you enough for listening. If I could sing... I'd be singing you out for this show, but I suck. So trust me, I'm doing you a big favor by not doing that. So I'll just say what I always say. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. Have fun. And I'll talk to you guys again on Monday. Peace out.